Welcome to Interfaith Encounters. In this third season, we're looking at migrants and immigrants, faithful encounters with the stranger in our midst. I'm Dr. Robert Hunt. My guest today is Dr. Zara Jamal, Associate Director at Rice University's Banyak Institute for Religious Tolerance. Welcome, Dr. Jamal. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Hunt. My first question is, how does your faith tradition understand our responsibility to migrants and immigrants? Oh, that's a wonderful question. You know, migration is really central in Islamic belief, history, and also its divine call to protect the sacrality and dignity of human life. So let's break it down a little bit. If we think first about um, migration as a spiritual concept related to the Islamic view of human life, we understand that um, from an Islamic perspective, humanity issues from a single divine soul. So we're all related, whether we like each other or not. This also means that the original home of humanity is heaven. And so if we conceive of Adam, the father of humanity, as having migrated from heaven to earth, then all human beings are actually immigrants in a cosmic or spiritual sense. And the earth is just a temporary stop while our souls take on human form. And while we're on earth, we're asked to pray and to be stewards of justice. Why is that the case? Because from an Islamic perspective, this world is also a bridge back to heaven. And everything we have in this world from life, time, knowledge, our family, the earth, all of those things actually belong to God. And they've simply been entrusted to us by him as their custodians. So we're meant to use those divine trusts to improve the world and to help our souls and each other's souls return to heaven, to their divine origin. In the second um, perspective, I think forced migration is also part of life and with it comes moral duties that are commanded by God. So again, here, the idea is that God owns all lands and we're simply custodians of it, not the owners. So none of us has the right to de deny refuge to God's children on his land. So for example, if you look at the Quran, the holy scripture of Islam, believed to be the word of God, it says helping the oppressed is a duty, a blessing, and an act of justice. And he goes on to say that those who do not provide humanitarian relief are condemned. It's a huge sin. And the oppressed actually have the right and the moral duty to flee and to seek protection. Why? Because they need to preserve their God-given dignity. So they have a moral duty towards God to flee oppression. And when we fulfill these divine commandments, God actually helps us, he tells us in the Quran. So for example, Muslim scripture narrates multiple stories of the prophets. For example, how prophet Abraham and his family were forced to migrate and were supported by God in the process. It talks about how Moses escaped his adoptive father, the Pharaoh, and his persecution, and how Moses was provided with shelter, work, and other amenities because of God's grace. The Quran even praises a Christian uh, king and priests and monks for their kindness and their lack of arrogance. And that revelation was conveyed after the Christian king of Abyssinia provided safe refuge for tortured Muslims at the prophet's call when prophet Muhammad sent those Muslims to the Christian king. So we see an immense wealth of, um, of commandments from God on this set of issues. 
And I think the third way that migration features in Islamic belief, and perhaps the most important in some ways, was that it was a key part of the Prophet's life and work, and thus became a way to mark time in Islam. So, for example, the Islamic calendar does not begin with the Prophet's birth, or even with the first revelation from God. Rather, the Islamic calendar begins with the Hijra, or the migration of the Prophet and his companions from Mecca to Medina in 622 when they were fleeing persecution, and when the Prophet was asked to help the warring tribes of Medina to settle their disputes. And the Muslim calendar year, therefore, is measured by the number of years after Hijra, A-H, meaning after migration. So today, we are in the year 1442 after Hijra. I think the circumstances of the journey actually help us understand why this particular set of events becomes year zero in the Islamic calendar as opposed to some other event in Islamic history. So remember, the Quran is an active and dynamic process of revelation um, from God to the Prophet. So during the Prophet and early Muslims hijra or migration from Mecca to Medina, God is sending guidance about those who are seeking refuge and those who are providing refuge. So interestingly, God calls new arrivals not refugees, but he calls them emigrants, the muhajirun, which acknowledges their active choice to flee injustice and preserve their lives, just as God had enjoined. God also says that migrants should be granted the same rights as their hosts, and additional support should be given to the vulnerable, namely to women and children, be they alone or with their families. And so in light of these revelations, the prophet goes on to create something called the Pact of Brotherhood. And he creates this pact between every Medinan Muslim, the local Muslims, the helpers called the Ansar, and the Meccan Muslims, the migrants. And they are called um, the Muhajirun, as I mentioned earlier. And in this pact, what he does is emphasize that religion is the binding principle among these Muslims over and above tribal relations and kin relations, which is what really marked social life in those days. And so the Muslims of Mecca, they arrive in Medina with nothing except the clothes on their back. They don't have any additional clothing, food, shelter, money, jobs, or even family. And the Muslims of Medina, the helpers, were themselves destitute. And despite their own poverty, they still shared everything that they had. They gave their wealth, their homes, their jobs, their food, their farms to help their migrant brothers and sisters and the migrant children, just as God had asked. But it wasn't just a sense of cooperation in a material sense. It was also a form of spiritual cooperation and support. So while one of them worked, the other one sat at the prophet's feet for religious guidance and would share the new revelations with their working brethren at dusk. And the next day they would switch roles. The helpers were so taken by the commandments of God that they even wrote the migrants into their wills to the exclusion of their own families so that the emigrants' descendants would not live in poverty. And in response to this, God sends another revelation. He praises the helpers' sacrifices and generosity despite their own poverty, but he also tells them, don't give everything away. You should also preserve wealth for your own families and for your own future generations. 
And so then they change course and how they're engaging with the migrant brothers, still helping them, but perhaps making some changes to their wills. And at this time, God is also cautioning uh, folks from becoming dependent on others. So this very clearly could apply to the migrants. And as a result, the prophet is encouraging migrants uh, from Mecca to work and to become self-reliant, to pray for their hosts and also to praise their generosity. And so here we see that the hijra, this migration, shows us that the relationship between the migrant and the helper can actually enable social and spiritual solidarity if it is driven not by force or by family ties, but by shared love for the creator and for his creation. So that's one of the key reasons why the hijra is really important in, um, in Islamic life and also in a marking time. But the other reason why it's important is that remember the migration was not just about escaping persecution, but also because the prophet was asked by local Arab and Jewish tribes to mediate their conflict. And so after arbitrating peace among these warring factions in Medina, the prophet goes on to create something called the constitution of Medina. And he does so in consultation with and signed by the polytheistic Arabs, the local Jewish tribes, Christians, and also the Muslims, not just those of Medina, but also the migrants who have come from Mecca. And this constitution is quite remarkable because it gave all of these different groups religious freedom. And it also granted them the right to protection by the prophet and his followers, the Muslims. It also granted rights to Africans, women, children, and the needy who had not had any kind of social standing or rights um, in pre-Islamic Arabia until this time, until this document was created. And then lastly, the, this charter provided a means for conflict resolution in case these problems arose again. And so the charter therefore transforms a multi-religious and fragmented set of tribes into a single ummah, a single community under one God. And what's interesting here is that this constitution or charter as it's called actually uses the term Ummah, which in Arabic means community, and in contemporary usage refers to the global Muslim community. But in this particular document, the community is not just Muslims, but it's Muslims, Christians, Jews, Arabs, Zoroastrians, and anybody else who was in Medina at that time. And so here, the migration or the hijra shows us that when we consult, include, respect, and learn from our human diversity, we can reduce conflict, exclusion, and injustice, and replace it constitutionally with inclusion, equity, and belonging, even for the most vulnerable. So again, we see how the hijra becomes such an important event in the life of the prophet, and also the life of the Muslim community at that time, and even today. Thank you very much. This is really very helpful. It, I just want to reiterate that you've you've given us three important points that in Islam immigration is is central and it's a spiritual concept that has to do with the, mm -hmm. the cosmology of humans in relationship to all of reality in heaven. You reminded us that forced migration is a part of the way human life takes place and it was experienced by the prophet in his community and others and therefore there are rights and obligations that go along with this. Uh, in particular, this interesting idea that since God owns everything and we are just custodians of it, that we don't have a right to refuse people access to God's own 
goods. This reminds me of a, uh, a long set of correspondence back in the 1980s related to land in Central America under, the, under Catholic priests who were doing studies of the Book of Deuteronomy, which says much the same thing. And when the, one of the studies was over, the, the priest asked the people who'd been involved in it in this village, what did you learn? And the thing they said was, the land belongs to God, not the landlord. Beautiful. Uh, wasn't maybe what the landlord was expecting. Um, the the third thing is this idea that migration is a key part of the prophet's life and work, and therefore there are these lessons that can be drawn from it. Mm-hmm. I want to ask a question because of a word you use, the, the mm-hmm. muhajirun. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is a I, I don't know Arabic myself, but I do know that Arabic words transform in certain ways that involve the addition of M-U at the end and, and U-N or R-U-N at the end. And uh-huh. the middle word there is haji, which I assume also relates to the hajj. Is that correct? It actually relates to the hijra. Hijra, okay. The hijra, yeah, the migration. And so therefore the mahajirun are those who migrate. I see, okay. Yeah. So it's it's related to that word, hijra, okay. Yeah. And then in addition to that, you've talked about this pact of brotherhood between the helpers and the Mahajirun. Yes. Right. And, um, and I was struck by this idea of a balance mm-hmm. um, that emerges in the revelation, which calls for the continued care of your own family as an obligation, right. the care for others, these newcomers that have come in, but also the encouragement to the others that they need to become self-reliant and work. And so that there's not an imbalance here of complete dependency or complete independency, but of of mutual balance where everybody plays their role. Is that correct? Absolutely. So I would say that in a, a, a shorthand way of saying this is that Islam is really about giving uh, a hand up, not a hand out. And the reason is that each of us has been born with God-given dignity. And in order to realize that, we must be self-sufficient. We cannot uh, be dependent on others. And all of us have this call to return to the divine, ideally in a higher form, and reunite with, with um, you know, his grace, and also to leave the world a better place. And it's really difficult to leave the world a better place if you're continuing to be dependent on others yourself. So you need to be self-sufficient to be able to pass on your own divine blessings to help others as well. So I think that's why you see this sense of both material and spiritual balance for the helpers and also for the migrants. Okay. And then the third thing, and then we'll move to the second question, is you you remind us of the constitution of Medina and the way in which, in a sense, the hijra, the migration, leads to the creation of this multi-ethnic, multi-religious society of people who are engaged in a mutual compact of care for one another and respect for one another. Yes, and I think it's it's really, um, you know, a, a beautiful story, and it gives us a model that we can use even today where we see that you know, the uh, rise in hate crimes in this country and globally really is driven by animosity towards uh, people of religious and racial differences. And so here we can see that in the seventh century, um, a, a society where there were tensions was able to resolve those and also find a way to move forward and, um, and to do so in a very um, legal uh, way that uh, everybody could ascend to. So I think this gives us a lot of hope for the future as well. 
Yeah. And I, I think it's fascinating this term Ummah mm -hmm. um, begins with this kind of society, even if in popular usage in Islam it comes to mean the whole of the Muslim community. Um, but I know that there's some work in the 20th century uh, by a number of authors, Muslim authors, uh, seeking to recapture this broader sense of the Ummah in relationship specifically to multi-ethnic, multi-religious nations like Indonesia and Malaysia, which is where I know this work being done. Yes, and, and I think it very much also relates to um, the, this uh, sentiment of the Quran that I opened with, that all of humanity issues from a single soul, and that God created us different so we may know one another and vie in good works. And so we are all of the same uh, single soul, and so it means that we are all one community as humanity. Okay. Thanks. Well, let's move on to the second question, which is, how is this being put in practice today? Again, a fantastic question. So I want to answer it again in three parts. And the first part, I'd like to um, say a little bit about the history since um, the prophet, um, you know, uh, passed. So this historic legacy is really driven by the Quranic call to protect refugees of any faith or philosophical tradition. So you see, therefore, over the centuries, Muslims who sheltered Jewish refugees who were escaping the Spanish Inquisition or the Bolshevik Revolution or even the Holocaust during World War II. There were also Muslims who helped Christians to escape um, Ivan the Terrible's reign and also gave them refuge. And of course, they've helped many others of other uh, backgrounds and traditions escaping from war or other troubled conditions. And that legacy continues to today. So by 2009, we see in the data from UNHCR that Muslim countries house one out of every four refugees or displaced people in the world. And since 2016, the Muslim nation of Turkey hosts the most refugees in the world, those from Africa and Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Syria, even from the Balkans. And this country spends the largest percentage of its national budget on refugee aid out of all countries in the world. And so it has this, um, uh, this uh, sort of award or this moniker of being the most humanitarian country in the world, which I find to be quite interesting. I think beyond, you know, looking at how historically this um, legacy has continued, it's also quite noteworthy that uh, Muslim leaders have actually helped to advance the contemporary global refugee infrastructure that we have today. So following World War I, the Aga Khan III, uh, Sir Sultan Muhammad Shah, who is the 48th hereditary Imam or spiritual leader of the global Shia Ismaili Muslim community, served on the League of Nations first as a member and later as its president in the 1930s. And during his tenure, the International Office for Refugees was established and oversaw the resettlement of refugees from World War I. This office also created something called the Nansen Passport, which allowed stateless people, the refugees, to travel between countries. And the work of this office was um, so impactful that the Office for Refugees actually received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1938. So quite remarkable. Now, of course, unfortunately, uh, the world did uh, experience war again. We do have World War II. And so the League of Nations is later replaced by the United Nations um, after World War II. But at that time, um, the Aga Khan III's son 
Prince Sadruddin Aga Khan, becomes the youngest ever and longest serving high commissioner for refugees at the newly established UNHCR. And in fact, he led this UN refugee agency through some very difficult times. For example, through the 1971 Bangladesh crisis, which uprooted 10 million people. Um, through the 1972 exodus of hundreds of thousands of Hutus from Burundi to Tanzania, the Indo-Chinese boat people tragedy of the mid-1970s, and of course the expulsion of tens of thousands of Asians from Uganda by Idi Amin in 1972. And you see even today that the current spiritual leader of the Ismailis, His Highness Prince Karim Aga Khan IV, has continued this work also, not only just by supporting uh, the resettlement of refugees, like from Burma, Afghanistan, Syria, Uganda, and, and elsewhere, but also by addressing the root causes of the inequities and conflicts that lead to refugee crises and mass migration. And he does this work through the Aga Khan Development Network, or the AKDN, which is a set of global uh, agencies across the world that partners with governments, nonprofits, and local vulnerable populations in more than 30 countries, primarily in Africa and Asia. And the purpose of their work is to enhance the quality of life of those vulnerable populations, to provide them with security and the means to self-sufficiency so that they can live with dignity and self-reliance. And this work, therefore, uh, focuses on a variety of areas from uh, poverty eradication and job creation, financial literacy and economic development, to providing access to education and healthcare, and fostering social peace and respect for diversity in a pluralistic environment. And so we see how there has been this creation at a global scale by Muslim leaders for the uh, uh, sort of support and resettlement of refugees and also preventing the, um, the conflict and context that lead to uh, their status as refugees. Um, I think the last area where we see this kind of Islamic ethos of uh, protecting the sacrality of life, especially of vulnerable populations, is noting that these relief efforts are not just done by Muslim leaders and the various institutions that they serve, but also by individuals, regular Muslims on the ground. So for example, in 2017, where we see the massive um, uh, you know, migration of Syrian refugees to various parts of Europe, many of them landed in Greece, in Thessaloniki. And some of these refugees, they would actually take government issued food that they received every day and go out and find homeless Greeks to give it to three times a day. And it was so remarkable and impactful that local volunteers, Greek volunteers who've been helping the homeless for years said that these refugees found impoverished pockets and neighborhoods that they had never even known about. And when one of these refugees was asked why he was doing what he was doing, he said, I don't care that I'm a Syrian and I'm a refugee or that these folks are Greek. We're all human and we need to all help each other. So really just a very beautiful sentiment. And I can share with you also another story of um, an individual named Ahmed, a middle-aged Iraqi refugee that I met a few years ago here in Houston. And he came to the US in 2010 with his family. And back in Iraq, he was a scientist. But when he came to the US, he began working in refugee resettlement. And when I asked him why, 
I really expected him to say, you know, it takes a really long time for a scientist to get recertified in the U.S. and to be able to get a job, and I've got to put food on the table. But instead, his response was really striking. He said, you know, refugee resettlement reminds me of the prophet's migration to escape religious persecution in Mecca and seek safety in Medina. And he was welcomed by the Ansar, the helpers. So Ahmed said that he sees himself as one of those helpers who provides migrants with food, housing, and jobs during their own hijra. So we see how Islamic uh, belief and history and this, this you know, moral duty to help others kind of all comes uh, you know, uh, into full circle with the story of Ahmed in many ways. So I just wanted to share that story as well and, and hope that these are some uh, examples that are helpful for you, Dr. Hunt, and for the audience on um, some practical insights of what uh, these issues look like today. Thank you. And, and it is actually very helpful. I, I want to, again, highlight just a few things. One is the reminder that you gave us that in many of the largest areas where you have migrants moving across borders to flee war or oppression, the, the countries that are on the front line of receiving them are often Muslim countries. And this is particularly true yes. across North Africa, through the Middle East, including Turkey. Uh, and that, uh, and one, one would have to include Pakistan and Bangladesh Absolutely. as well when it comes Absolutely. to it. Um, and that's something we, we often hear about refugees when they arrive at a Western country and not so much about the intermediate stages that many of them went through and and the places that many of them remain and still are exactly and those countries are doing uh yeoman's work then to try to help these refugees uh, the second thing is uh, it's fascinating the story of the aga khan um, his son his grandson uh is is one that's very interesting to me and i'll rather than highlight it more because people can look this up on their own it's the point that you find a person of deep spirituality, a, a genuine religious leader, who finds that there is a congruence between the work in the international political realm and the work that's called by the religion, and that these two are not a separate sort of thing. Um, and I know that in particular in these migrations and um, that occurred in the 60s, 70s, and through the 80s, the Aga Khan IV was not only involved at the official level of the UN, but also at a personal level in the support that he was able to give refugees and in brokering deals with receiving governments, for example, Canada. Yes, absolutely. And then I think that it's nice of you to point out that this often comes down to regular people doing regular things for people and gets us down to the fact that all of these obligations, as I understand it, are individual obligations, not merely obligations that get passed along. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Islam is a lived faith, and every aspect of life is guided by that faith. And it, it's something for which each of us is answerable on the day of judgment. The obligations are no different, regardless of your wealth or status in society or your race or gender or any of those things. And so each of us is called to do this work, which is why I found, you know, the story of Adil, this Syrian refugee in Greece, so remarkable, because He's the one who needs help, and yet he's giving that help away because he says, look, there's other people who are suffering too. Let's help them also. And I think that just really wonderfully encapsulates this ethos of Islam, which calls for uh, protecting uh, you know, the dignity of the human being and um, protecting the sacrality of human life, regardless of whose life it is.
I want to thank you for being part of the podcast. I'll ask if you have any closing words you want to say, and then we'll wrap up. I think that uh, this has just been a delightful conversation, and I really appreciate the opportunity to have it with you, Robert. And I hope that your listeners also found it to be um, interesting and useful, too. Thank you very much. This has been Interfaith Encounters. I'm Dr. Robert Hunt speaking with Dr. Zara Jamal, the Associate Director at Rice University's Banyak Institute for Religious Tolerance. Again, thank you, Dr. Jamal. Thank you.